Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. Welcome to episode 86. Welcome back, everybody. How are you doing, Jen? I'm good, but all right, I have a question. Okay. What time do you eat lunch normally? What time do you Well, um, now. Okay. Normally versus now. Like normally what time do you now. usually eat lunch? What time do you quarantine lunch? Uh, I generally eat quarantine lunch like right at the stroke of 11 <laughs> because I feel like that's the earliest I could eat lunch without it being like morning. I ate my lunch today at 10.30. Oh, I've done that. I've done that when I can't wait. I've definitely eaten my lunch at 10.30. Dude, if there are leftovers in the fridge, I'm eating that shit way before lunchtime. (laughs) And if it's pizza, I'm eating it at 9.30. Yeah, that's breakfast. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's not lunch. That's I'm having pizza breakfast. I just feel like I'm doing everything so early. I'm like, I go to bed earlier and earlier every single night. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've started eating dinner at like five. Dude, we've always eaten dinner at five. <laughs> <laughs> My friends think we're great. They're always like, you're already making dinner. It's like 3.30 and I'm in the kitchen. And I'm like, I just can't wait. <laughs> Zach and I are just always very excited about food. I know. Um, I yeah, Yesterday, I was maybe 10 a.m. and I was like, what What do you think we should do for dinner? <laughs> he was like, oh my God, it's 1030. I was like, I know, I just, I need something to look forward to. <laughs> I know. I like, all I think about is food and then also like, okay, I need a, I need a real answer. How many glasses of wine a night do you drink? I don't drink very many. Oh, okay. I, I maybe, sorry, I'm sorry. I know, maybe, <laughs> may, I, maybe a couple times a week I'll have a glass of wine, but my problem, I've, I've, even before quarantine, I have the problem of I'll like start a drink and then uh, and then abandon it and then fall asleep. <laughs> so oh my God. I wish I that was me. I well, I, so I have two glasses of wine every single night. But I don't think that that is. I don't, I don't think that's unusual. Or but or do you wrong. know that when I googled it, it says it is. <laughs> Well, that's why you should never Google anything, Jen. And I'm like, but just let me have this. (laughs) I'm just curious. Certainly, nights when I do have two drinks, but I I mean, I'm more of like if, like if we were in a social setting, I could drink endless amounts. Right. But when I'm sitting on my couch and looking at my kid, who I have to then put to sleep, and then I know I have to wake up with him, like if I have two drinks, I have a hangover. It's so sad. Yes, it's so sad. (laughs) Okay, it used I, to be so cool. You guys, you don't – our listeners, you don't have to out yourselves if you don't want to. You don't have to even tell me anything else. Just send us a random number. Just like yeah. on the side, just throw a number at us, like four, seven. Just tell us how many glasses of wine at night are you drinking? <laughs> <laughs> For real. I just need – I need to gauge – whether or not I have a drinking problem. <laughs> and I need your information to see where I fall on the spectrum. So if you guys just like randomly just text me a number. Text me uh, – email it to us. Instagram it to us. You know, Facebook. You could do, Gmail, you could do a, t- like a TikTok. TikTok. TikTok dance. <laughs> the number of waves you do while you're dancing. I'll know that that means the number of – drinks you have per night just just use you guys let's <laughs> let's just let's make jen feel normal i think i am i think i am below normal there are certainly weeks where i drink more and somewhere i don't drink at all but that's all just because i'm i'm like literally will shut down after 6 p.m uh, oh i do yeah i'm like i can't i can't <laughs> even bring myself up to drink i'm just like uh, i'm like counting the minutes to bedtime i love bedtime um well all right now that we've explored our levels of alcoholism (laughs) should we get into some quickies you know what i think this is a great time for some quickies (laughs) okay 
All right, John, I'm first. Yes. Uh, I got my information from the Washington Post, an article by Kelly B. Gormley, and from the Good News Network by Judy Cole. Nice. So this is one of those quickies where it basically falls in the category of I read an article that made me feel really good, and it doesn't quite fit into what like our relationship. So you're going to bend it, you're going to mold it, you're going <laughs> to twist it and turn it because we make the needs. fucking rules, right? Okay. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so Cy Green was a freshman at Palma High School in Salinas, California, and his family. Two bad things happened in his family. His dad had a heart attack and needed a heart transplant, and then his oh, mom was in an accident that impaired her vision. And so both of his parents lost their jobs around the same time. Oh, no. And his uh, his school, his high school, Palma, is a private all-boys Catholic school. So like on top of everything else happening with his family, he was going to have to drop out of the school because now his parents couldn't afford the tuition. And the school is actually a lot of kids who go there on scholarships. And so they gave him a scholarship, but his family still couldn't make up the difference. And that, Jen, is when a group of unlikely people stepped in and paid for his tuition for from his sophomore year through graduation. Penguins wearing top hats. Close. Okay. Inmates at oh, California's really? Soledad prison. Wow. So, you know, they are also wearing black and white. So. Wow. <laughs> so the reason that the group decided to pay size tuition is because – of a book club that they were a part of that was started by this guy named Jim Micheletti, who was an English teacher at Palma School. And he had created the reading program at the prison seven years earlier, and it was called Exercises in Empathy. And through this program, students at the school and teachers meet inside the prison to discuss books with inmates. So it's like a book club. And oh, wow. Yeah. And so like the, the, the idea is not only to like – talk about intellectual things, but also to change the students' notions about inmates and to offer the prisoners a chance to kind of step outside of the normal prisoner stereotypes. And Mm -hmm. the teacher, Jim, says they go in thinking monster and they come out thinking that person is a man, a human being. They've done bad things, but there are no throwaway people here. So in 2016, the book club read a book called Miracle on the River Kwai, And it's about a group of prisoners of war who start by being opposed to each other and then band together to help each other. And this guy, Jason Bryant, who was serving a 26-year prison for his part in armed robbery, finished reading the book and was so inspired by the story that he and a fellow inmate whose name was Ted Gray decided that they wanted to live by the book's example of this small group of men who made a different decision and decided to look out for each other. And the two wanted to give back to this book club that had given so much to them. So they decided to create a scholarship fund for a Palma student. And they decided that Cy Green was the one to get it. So during the next three years, they worked to gather donations from prisoners who make like $20 a month. He asked them twice a year. They asked them twice a year to give to this fund. Mm-hmm. And prisoners did. They also asked for outside donation. And they they worked. Wow. They ended up raising like over $30,000 over three years. And they paid for his whole high school education. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Cy graduated in 2019. He's now studying at San Francisco's Academy of Art University. And he said that the kindness of the inmates was a huge surprise and a huge honor. He said that the experience with the inmates taught him about humility and not judging too harshly. He said he plans on paying the inmates good deed forward. He said, they put all this effort and all this work into me, so I have to honor that and carry the legacy on. And Jason, who was the inmate that started this initiative, said that the inmates were motivated by wanting to contribute to the next generation. He said, I think that inherently most people, even those of us who have made the worst decisions in our lives, want to be a part of something good. The idea when we started was just so good. We can help some young man get a head start that a lot of us didn't have. So Jason, who earned a bachelor's and two master's degree while he was in prison, was granted clemency after serving 20 years, and he now serves as the director of restorative programs at CROP, which is a nonprofit in California that focuses on reducing the recidivism rate for inmates, and they get through training, career development, housing, And he told the Washington Post, he said, 
I don't know about redemption. I can say this. I know that those of us who have truly transformed our lives are committed to adding value in any way that we possibly can. And the teacher who started the program, Jim Micheletti, said, it becomes a great lesson in redemption and hope. We will all hurt people and we will fail. So what comes next? Wow. That is a good one. That is. Dude, I can't believe. Okay, so I guess we both have some feel-good quickies. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. This is a feel – you know, I think we needed this. uh (laughs) I mean, can I say I'm shocked, Jen? Shocked. I'm shocked too. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think it was – I think we all needed a little little lift today. Mm -hmm. Okay, so my quickie came from an article for people.com by Rachel DeSantis and an Uh article for olg.com. CA, which is a Canadian website. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's Canadian. Like, those, don't, those don't seem like the right letters. <laughs> they are. I checked them 10 times. Um, so <laughs> 20 years ago, 50-year-old Dang Pravitudum's husband woke up from his sleep to write down numbers that came to him in a dream. Um, okay. He told – "Have I mean, that's really smart to like think that quickly because I always have dreams where I'm like – this is the answer to everything. And then I wake up and I, I'm like, what was the answer to everything? I always or like jo- jokes. jokes. Yeah. yeah. Like, but this I know is that so they're not funny. And then I'll wake up and I'll be like, this is garbage. <laughs> um, so he told um, Dang about his wife, Dang, about the numbers because he just knew that they had to be significant in some way, like these numbers just coming to him in a dream. And she agreed. And so for the last 20 years, she has played those numbers in the Canadian lottery, like religiously, just keeps yeah. playing the same numbers over and over and over. Dang is an immigrant who came over to Canada in 1980 with her 14 siblings from Laos. Wow. And when she, they came over, they didn't have anything. They were very poor and um, they were sponsored by a local church that provided for them for years. And then for the past 40 years, her and her husband both have worked as general laborers, working really hard to support their families. Um, Their parents, they have two children and then they also have two grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And then this spring due to COVID, Den ended up losing her job and was really struggling. So, which is just heartbreaking. You know, she's been such a hard worker for so long. Right. Um, And then this December, Dang and her husband went out to run some errands and she ran into the bank to go pay some bills. And he went in to check on the lotto tickets that they play every week. And when she returned back to the car, that's when her husband broke the news to her. After 20 years of playing the exact same numbers that had come to him in a dream, they had won the jackpot of $60 million. <gasps> Yay! $60 million. Deng said he was serious, not joking, so I knew he was telling the truth. I started to cry. I have always pray- prayed for a blessing that my family would be taken care of. You know, so she was the one that bought the winning ticket. She said uh-huh. that... Um, when she, the day she bought the ticket, she said she left her temple after d- praying for a bit and then went to a nearby mall to run errands. And then she checked a Lotto Max ticket and then she won a free play ticket. So she, so you guys don't throw away those free tickets. You know, when you play the scratch offs and it says yeah. you've won one free. Oh, she, that's, she won don't the throw one away. free. Yeah. So she won <gasps> a free play. And then she says she added something that's called an encore. I'm, I don't know what that means, but it's probably like double or triple it or I don't know. But yeah. um, so she says she couldn't believe when just a few days later, that free ticket that she got ended up being the $60 million winner. Man, see, this is what gives me hope that someday yeah. I'll win the lottery because I also really want it. Oh, <laughs> me too. And they said that when they told their children the news, they said, Mom and Dad, you've worked so hard for 40 years and made so many sacrifices. You deserve this happiness. And oh, for now – they, they raised nice kids too. I know. Because the kids weren't like, <laughs> it's mine. Um, yeah. So for now, they plan to move out of their apartment and buy a new house with their winnings. They're going to pay off some bills and they want to help immediate and extended family. And then once it's safe to do so, they plan to travel the globe. She said that, except for when I came to Canada from Laos, she said, I've never really traveled. So I want to see Europe, Texas, Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all the biggies. (laughs) Yeah. And she said, I'm excited to see the world. 
So oh, that's so amazing for them. That is so exciting. Yeah, yeah. I, I just love that. You know, but isn't that so crazy? Like that those numbers came to him in a dream. I know that is amazing. Twenty years earlier, and I don't. Okay, I'm going to say this on the podcast. You guys, Sally and I have a weird thing uh-huh. with the numbers five, five, five. And it's supposed to mean something. It's supposed to mean like big things are coming. And Sally and I see the number 555 everywhere. It's a running joke where every time we're talking to each other, we'll look down and it's 555. Like Max just started randomly saying 555 the other day. Yeah. And like just weird and like just weird stuff. Like um, it'll be on my the cost of my sandwich was 555. Just like so we keep seeing this. So Sally and I like to believe that mm-hmm. this number is trying to tell us that something really big is happening. And I refuse to believe that the big thing that happened was uh, COVID. (laughs) Because when the whole world turned upside down, I was like, is this it? Is this the thing? (laughs) No, Sally. I'd like to believe that a lottery ticket worth $60 million is waiting for us. I believe it. Five, five, five. Five five five. We're gonna five, need five, some more five. numbers, but yeah, we'll start with those. Mm-hmm. That was a good one. That made really. That really like. It made me. It made me hopeful for everybody, and it just made me feel so good for those people. Yeah, I know. Me too. That's, that's a rare one. Good. I love yeah. it. All right, now let's talk about some death. All right. Hey Jen. Hey Sally. Are you ready for the true crime story of the week? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am. Uh, okay. We did enough good. Let's get into the bad. Yeah. The yeah. And the yang. Good. Well, this one is real bad. Oh, no. So I got my information from a 48 hours mystery with Richard Schlesinger Ooh. from a Dateline episode from a penlive.com article by Barbara Miller, Daily Mail article by Ashley Coleman, and a Fox News article by Stephanie L- Nolasco. Nice. Um, okay, so I just want to give a warning up top that there is suicide in this story. Okay. And so if that is a trigger for you, then just fast forward to the nice story that Jen's going to tell in about 20 minutes. <laughs> so Cindy and Joe Masante lived in the tiny town of Readers, Pennsylvania with their two children. This is – it's in a little town in the Poconos. And Joe was a carpenter. Cindy worked as a secretary at Readers Methodist Church. And the two had had troubles in their 18-year marriage, mostly because of Joe's problems with alcohol. But recently, he'd made a real effort to get clean. And as part of that, the whole family got very involved in the church where Cindy worked. Joe volunteered to work as a handyman around the grounds, and he even built furniture for the church, including this beautiful handcrafted desk for the church's pastor, A.B. Shermer, who was recently widowed after his wife had died in a car accident. So with their investment in the church, things seemed to be looking up for Cindy and Joe and their two kids. So it was a shock to their daughter, Samantha, who was just 16 at the time, when she discovered text messages between her mom and her mom's boss, the church pastor, A.B. Shermer, that made it seem like the two were having an affair. The text said things like, I love you and I can't wait to see you. They were having an affair. We're having having an affair. (laughs) Like they weren't, it wasn't, they weren't sexual, but not things that could be construed as just friendly. Like the the daughter was like, it wasn't like, I love you in Christ. (laughs) You know, like it was, I love you. So Samantha felt betrayed by her mother because she considered her her best friend and she knew that an affair would destroy her already fragile father. And so instead of telling him, she decided that she was going to write an anonymous email to AB, the pastor, saying that people knew what they were doing and that they that it should stop because all Samantha really wanted was for this to stop and her family to go back to normal. But Cindy and AB figured out that it was Samantha who sent the email, and so they sat her down and talked to her together, which you can imagine how crazy awkward that was for a 16-year-old. And they said that she had gotten it wrong, that nothing was going on between them, and how dare she accuse them of an affair. And Samantha was like, I didn't know what to do. This was her mother and the pastor of her church, and so she didn't 
feel like she could contradict them. So she kept quiet, but soon her dad, Joe, started asking questions. He asked Samantha if she had noticed anything about her mom, and she told him the truth. She said she was pretty sure that A.B. and Cindy were having an affair. And Joe asked her point blank, he said, does she love him? And Samantha said, I think so. So Joe confronted Cindy, and she promised to end the affair, but he soon discovered that Cindy was making secret phone calls to the pastor, and the two had a fight, and Cindy took her kids to her sister's house. So the next day, this was in October of 2008, Joe Masante died by suicide. He shot himself in the church office, sitting at Pastor A.B. Sherman's desk (gasps) that Joe had made himself. So when Joe's sister, Rose Cobb, went to readers for the memorial service, she noticed how there was no one there comforting Cindy and the family, which was strange because she knew what a big part of the church the family had become. And that is when Cindy admitted to her sister-in-law that she had fallen in love with A.B. And Rose asked, are you having an affair? And Cindy said, well, that depends what you mean by having an affair. And then she told Rose that it was an emotional affair. You know, like fucking. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what do you mean by having an affair? So Cindy maintained that it was not physical. It was just emotional. But Rose says that, so this is a night before her husband who had just killed himself, that Cindy was giddy when she talked about A.B., And the whole experience obviously made Rose angry and it made her really suspicious. And Rose was um, Joe's sister. Rose was Joe's sister. Sorry. I know there's a lot of names too. Yeah. And so the first thing that Rose did was call the bishop and tell them about A.B. and Cindy's affair because here is a church pastor having an affair with not only his parishioner, but also his, his employee. So, and she had learned that before his death, Joe had actually threatened suicide, not just to Cindy, but also to AB and neither of them had done anything about it or told anyone. And so the church leadership after hearing from Rose forced AB to resign, but Rose was not done. Her next call was actually to the police but it wasn't her brother Joe's death that she was suspicious of. The police had naturally looked into the circumstances around his death, and they had found that everything added up to a self-inflicted gunshot wound. They had even looked at Cindy and A.B.'s alibis, and there was no indication they had anything to do with Joe's death. They were both other places when it happened. What Rose wanted the police to investigate was the car accident that had killed A.B.'s wife, Betty, just three months earlier. Oh, whoa. Okay. Okay, so Betty and A.B. had married in 2001. They both had grown kids from previous marriages. And when the two met, Betty's sisters, Sandy and Tina, were so happy for her. She, They loved that A.B. was a pastor. They loved that he was so nice to her. They loved how happy he made their sister. Both of the sets of kids were happy for the pair, too. The couple were avid runners, and they called each other their best friend. Betty's son, Nate, said he respected A.B., and in fact, it was A.B. who presided over his wedding in 2003. About a year after Betty and A.B. were married, A.B. took the job at Reader's Methodist, and the couple had moved about two hours from Lebanon, which is where they were living before. And Betty was lonely at first. She missed being close to her sister and to her kids, but she found friends in the church community. Everybody said she was outgoing. She was super warm. She was like this perfect pastor's wife. Mm -hmm. The church members always remarked about how solid the couple seemed and how like they never did anything apart. And then in July of 2008, there was the car accident. So this couple happened to be driving down a deserted road in Reeder when they saw A.B. and Betty's PT Cruiser jammed up against a guardrail and there was smoke coming out of the hood. They rushed to the driver's door and opened it and they saw A.B. sitting there. He was dazed, but he was unhurt. And they asked him if he and Betty were okay. And he said he was fine, but he was worried that his wife, Betty, who hadn't been wearing her seatbelt, was not okay. And in fact, when she got to the hospital, doctors told the family that the injuries she'd sustained were so bad that she would never recover. She had injuries to both sides of her head and her sisters, Tina and Sandy, rushed to the hospital, and together with A.B., 
they made the decision to take Betty off life support the next day. So soon after she passed, the coroner asked AB what had happened, and he told them that Betty had taken off her seatbelt to, like, adjust herself to make herself comfortable, and that as soon after a deer had come into the road, he'd swerved to miss it, and he had lost control of the car and hit the guardrail. And this was like, you know, it was a small town in the mountains and a deer causing a wreck was something that happened pretty often. Yeah. So the coroner determined that Betty's injuries seemed consistent with a car wreck and police didn't have any reason to investigate further. So several days after Betty's death, she was cremated and the church community gathered for her funeral. And probably no one would have asked questions if the husband of AB's new love interest hadn't died by suicide just three months later. Wow. So when police looked just a little harder into Betty's death, they found that there was much more to be concerned about beyond just the timing of these two deaths. So first they had these the concerns of Betty's sisters who told them that they had been bothered at the time that A.B. said that Betty was not wearing a seatbelt. They said that Betty was like one of those people who wouldn't start the car unless everyone was wearing their seatbelt, and they just couldn't believe that she would have taken it off. Mm -hmm. And they also thought that it was odd that A.B. had told everyone that he and Betty had agreed to cremation before her death because when their mother had passed, she had wanted to be cremated, and they remember Betty being very against it. So, like, at the time, those things seemed odd, but it also – everybody was saying – this was straightforward an accident, so they that they never brought those up to anyone. Mm-hmm. But next, the police looked at the evidence of the car crash, and they noticed that there were a lot of things that seemed off about AB's story. They found no skid marks, which meant that he had not stopped on the brakes to avoid a deer like he said he had. There mm-hmm. were pictures of the car showed that the car was actually like in pretty good shape after the wreck. Like there was a very little damage to the front end of the car. The airbags had never gone off, meaning that this was obviously a very low-speed impact. Not enough to, like, hurt injure her so badly. Yes. And AB a- had told the police he'd been driving about 55 miles an hour, and police were actually able to prove that he couldn't have been going any more than 25 miles an hour at the time of the crash. Oh, wow. And in fact, like, after the wreck, the car was drivable. So they're like, why hadn't he just – Backed driven the to car the up and driven to the hospital. Exactly. So they couldn't examine her body because she'd been cremated, but forensic pathologists looked at scans of Betty's head wound and they found that the severe trauma was not consistent with the type of crash that it had actually been. And then they found blood drops on the seat cushion underneath where Betty had been sitting. And basically, like, you know, I'm can't exactly explain it because it's all whatever but it basically it led police to determine that betty had been placed in the car while she was bleeding Mm -hmm. so like that blood hadn't happened from the car wreck it was there before but what really disturbed the police was that betty wasn't ab's first wife to die in a tragic (gasps) accident oh no So they called Lebanon County Police, and they found out that A.B.'s first wife of 15 years, her name was Jewel, that she had died in 1999 from a fall down the stairs. Oh, my gosh. It's like the staircase. Yes. So it looked like she had been vacuuming the stairs with, like, one of those big shop vac vacuums, Mm -hmm. and that her foot had gotten caught in the cord, and that she had tumbled down to the bottom. And so doctors had initially thought that maybe she'd had a heart attack and that's why she had fallen. But then the medical examiner found no evidence of heart disease. And in fact, even at the time when Jewel died in 1999, the coroner who had examined her had questioned that this was an accident because he noticed that Jewel had injuries to her head, but nowhere else, which didn't make sense if she had really fallen down the stairs. And the coroner had asked police at the time to look into Jewel's death, but they never did. And so he had ruled it undetermined, and that's where it had stayed, meaning that, like, the case was never actually closed. So in December of 2008, police brought A.B. in for questioning, and at the same time, they got a warrant to search the parsonage where he had been living at the time of Betty's death. And in the garage, they found evidence of quite a bit of blood that had been cleaned up with drops leading to where the passenger side of the door of the car would have been, and then no more drops after that. 
and tests confirmed that the blood was Betty's. And when they asked AB at the, like he was in the police station at the time they were searching the parsonage. And so they were like, did Betty ever bleed in the parsonage? And he was like, no. But then when they confronted him with this blood evidence, he was like, oh, oh you yeah. mean Betty? Oh, right. Oh, you know what? I forgot <coughs> that about that. Betty. <laughs> Betty, my wife. Betty, oh, my right, wife. Right, right. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot she actually did get cut when we were moving some wood from the garage out into the yard and we both got cut. So that's if you find my blood, maybe that's why. Um, and police did find a big pile of wood in the backyard, but when they moved the wood, they found no blood on it. And at the bottom of the wood pile were some local newspapers that were dated September of 2008, which was two months after Betty had died. Wait, wait, say that one more time. So they moved the wood pile and at the bottom of the wood pile where he said that they had- been that like where, oh. There were, oh. yeah. So it was like the wood pile had been moved after her death, what which doesn't dummy. necessarily prove that he did, did it, but it really puts like, right. his story seems very fishy. So, I don't so like please it. take, yeah, police are like begin building a case against AB, but of course that takes time. And so- you know, over the next year and a half, they start gathering evidence and statements, not just for Betty's death, but also for AB's first wife, Jewel. Um, and one thing they found was that Betty's injury looked exactly like Jewel's injuries. So police did tests to see if someone falling down the stairs could have sustained the injuries to her head that Jewel did and determined that it couldn't have happened. And Jewel's cause of death was officially ruled a homicide. Oh, wow. So now, despite the suspicion that was around him, Cindy remained in love with A.B. And Samantha, who you'll remember that was Cindy's daughter, who was the one who first found the text messages, said that A.B. started spending the night at their house and then the weekend, and pretty soon he wasn't leaving at all. And as soon as Samantha turned 18, she moved out of the house. And that was the first, when she moved out of the house, was the first that she learned that A.B. was actually being investigated for the murder of his first two wives. Oh, wow. And she, she knew that her mother was so in love with A.B. that she nothing she said would make a difference. So she kind of just went her own way and stayed out of it. But then in the summer of 2010, Cindy texted Samantha and told her that A.B. had bought her a ring and that they were going to be married. And Samantha was like, I can't stay out of this any longer. So she called the police because she was worried that what her had happened to- Her mom would be next. Yeah. She Sorry, was like, that's, no, that's exactly right. That <laughs> was going to happen to her. She's going to be next. Oh and detectives w- agreed. They were like, they couldn't wait any longer that Cindy might be in danger. And so in September of 2010, almost two years after Betty's death, A.B. was arrested and charged with her murder. So he went to trial in January of 2013, and it, the newspapers were now calling A.B. the Sinister Minister. So That's a good one. That's a pretty good one. Um, <laughs> but even though he hadn't yet been charged in Jewel's death, the judge agreed to let the evidence of her death come in as like part of a pattern of action. Mm-hmm. So one th- other thing that came out in the trial that doesn't isn't proof but is pretty chilling – A.B. had chosen an urn for Betty's remains that had a deer on it, which is, like, so creepy considering he said that it was a deer that had caused the accident. Yeah. Samantha Masante, who is Cindy and Joe's daughter, testified about how she discovered the affair between her mother and A.B. soon after Betty's death. And then after the prosecution had presented all of their evidence, A.B. Shermer took the stand in his own defense He went through the story of his crash, and the prosecutor said it was clear that the jury didn't believe him and actually called A.B. one of the prosecution's best witnesses. A.B. claimed on the stand that he and Betty had not been intimate for several years. He alleged that Betty had been through menopause and wasn't interested in sex. He admitted to viewing pornography on his home computer, but he maintained that he was innocent in both cases. So it took the jury only 90 minutes to come back with a guilty verdict, which in Pennsylvania carries a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole. But despite that sentence, both Cindy and AB's daughters remain dedicated to AB and believe that he is innocent. The daughters say that Cindy has become like a grandmother to their kids. And Samantha says that she, 
on the other hand, has no relationship with her mother. Oh, wow. At AB's sentencing, Cindy testified on his behalf. She said, I'm not ignorant. My head is not in the sand and I'm not out of touch. I just believe in someone I love. She said, no one has ever described him as violent or abusive. I believe things happen for a reason. I believe in faith, hope, truth, love, and that evil will be defeated. We may have lost this battle, but we haven't lost the war to free an innocent man. So then a year and a half after he was convicted of Betty's murder, A.B. Shermer was charged with the murder of his first wife, Jewel. And in a surprising move that kind of shocked people who believed he was innocent, he pled no contest to that charge, meaning that he was not admitting guilt, but he was accepting the punishment. Mm-hmm. And A.B. said that it was because he was already in jail for life and he didn't want to put his family through another trial. But he was sentenced to 20 to 40 years in prison, which was the maximum that he could get on top of his life sentence. So he's filed appeals for his uh, conviction in Betty's murder, but those have been denied. But even as recent as 2015, Cindy Masante says she still believes 100% in A.B.'s innocence. Wow. I know. Isn't that So they're nuts? still married. They never got married. Oh, okay. Because he went to jail before they could get married. But they are she's still she's still in contact with him. As far as I know, I couldn't find anything more recent than wow. 2015. Now, is there any speculation or um suspicion on whether or not he could have killed killed Joe? Um, there was suspicion in the beginning, but they ruled them out very quickly there was both of them had solid airtight alibis and um and all of the evidence was consistent like there was nothing like amiss about okay so when he when he committed suicide in his office he was not in the office no 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 okay ab was not in the office like but that is where joe went to do it and he also here's what it's also crazy is that i'm very sad is that Joe, like, didn't leave a suicide note, but he did leave for his daughter, Samantha, folder full of documents that he was about – because he was going to report A.B. to the Methodist leadership, and he left his daughter, like, those documents and was like, you finish the job. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Man, like, I – I could see how it could be very easy for his children to want to believe him. Yeah. Because it just, this is kind of, it's very similar to the whole um, staircase. Yeah. Um, right. Where know, story is uh, like the, the daughters still believe him um, and, and believe that he's innocent just because it's like he's, even though it's, it's something that's happened twice in the past and mm-hmm. that seems lightning striking twice. Yeah. You know, but, but, it's easy to be like he, he's just had all this bad luck, right? Like, like my this poor is father. a sympathetic yeah. figure. He's mm-hmm. never been violent. You guys want a murder story, so you're making it a murder story. But yeah, really, this poor man has been through so much. But I think you know, looking at it from as an us looking at it from outsiders, of course, we're like he's guilty as fuck. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just the fact that they had the exact same injuries on their head like the pathologists think that it was probably like a tire iron that he used on both of them and it's it's crazy like in the um i don't know where they're at now but now in the 48 hours mystery they like ask the daughters are on there talking and they ask well what do you say when the coroners are saying there was 14 blows to her head and they're like well we don't believe that that's just one person saying that like they just are like it's basically like you know this is not the truth we won't accept this these facts as truth. Mm-hmm. That sounds familiar, <laughs> right? <laughs> like oh, I guess that's just a choice now. Yeah. You can just not Ooh. believe facts. <laughs> I choose not to. I choose um, not. Man, that's a so wild yeah. story. It's a wild story. It's pretty sad. So I hope you have something real light for us. Um, I do. It's a nice little love story. <laughs> I guess I should start by saying, hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. (laughs) Are you ready for a love story? Yes, I am. Okay. This is a nice little love story brought to you by um, a wonderful article for NPR written by Nick Schoenfeld. 
Thanks, Nick. Um, sure. Yeah, that's where I got my information from. On July 1st, 2019, so this is very recent. Okay. Which, these are modern times. Um, <laughs> 27 I'm like, I'm like, but 2019 also seems so far away. Ago. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it was a, a different world. It's we a could say that. Um, 27-year-old Fiona Tenhav and 32-year-old Patrick Ferry met while working in Malawi for Heifer International, which is a nonprofit group that supports agricultural projects in 21 countries. So they were doing good work. Yeah, um, that's a it's a cool organization. That's awesome. Yeah. So Patrick, who is from Malawi, was a project coordinator, and Fiona, who is Dutch and from the Netherlands, was there interning as an animal health specialist. Okay. And uh, I did not know this, but apparently people refer to Malawi as the warm heart of Africa. Have you heard no, that before? I have not. Well, they do. Because <laughs> it says it. And, All um, right. <laughs> and, uh, but, and Fiona completely agreed and found that to be true because she said that people were always super friendly to her and always wanting to help. And one of the most friendly people that she met was Patrick. Patrick said, from the moment I first saw her, I felt different. And I love the way she smiled and talks. But he wasn't sure that Fiona felt the same way as he did. So he got to talking with her. After a week after they met, he asked her out to lunch. And then he asked her for her phone number because he told her that he wanted to learn Dutch. And Fiona mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. just, yeah. <laughs> Fiona, yeah, I remember telling telling Ben that I wanted to learn the guitar. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> I have never. I have never. <laughs> he did when we were first together. He... He bought me like a little guitar and I was like, oh no, I was just flirting. Wanting to hang out with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't hey, actually man, want to. I used to guitar. really love hockey and drinking beer. <laughs> I used to love it. <sighs> and then as soon as we were officially a couple, I was like, can you shut this fucking game off? <laughs> Got things to do and housewives to watch. <laughs> You're like, um, oh my god, this playoff season <laughs> lasts for five years. <laughs> it is. Oh my god, hockey's the longest season ever. Um, but Fiona said that she liked him right away. Yeah. Um, so Patrick would take her around the city and show her everything. And he told her about his. He has a three-year-old daughter named Zara who lives about six-hour drive south from where they were with his ex. But he would talk about his daughter and they would go on these long walks and they would get longer and longer each time they would go on walks and they just got closer and closer. Fiona said he was making silly jokes all the time. I really liked that. But she didn't know if he had a girlfriend or not. So she always kind of kept a little bit of a distance, you know. But then she said, once I knew he was single, things went really quickly. It just felt right. And I knew he was the one. So they spent all of their time together while she was there interning. But that December, her internship was going to come to a close. You know, she would have to return home to the Netherlands. But they, they knew how much they loved each other. And they already talked about getting married. Yeah. So yeah. So six months after they met, she ended up returning to the Netherlands on December 31st first Um, yeah so she went back and then she moved in with her parents while she started to look for a job but she knew that all she wanted was to be with Patrick yeah Um, so they would talk and talk and talk and talk and then from thousands of miles away from each other Patrick and Fiona came up with a plan the plan was that Patrick was going to come visit her in the Netherlands and then they would end up moving to Lalongwe, Malawi, and they would build a house together and then get married. That um, sounds lovely. That does sound lovely and like a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> like, are they going to build a house like with their hands? I, with a hammer? <laughs> But seems crazy. I like a lot. <laughs> but um, so on that March 16th, Patrick ended up hopping on a plane and arrived to the uh, Schiphol. I'm going to say this wrong. Schiphol uh-huh. Airport in Amsterdam. Schiphol? You would know. You, you're worldly. <laughs> nope. Okay. Well, the air, how about the airport in Amsterdam? Okay. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 
And Fiona was waiting for him. And then together they ended up traveling to, all the way to the village of Middlestum, which is where she lived with her parents. Um, her mm-hmm. parents were named Aldert and Rita. Even though they had already talked about getting married, Patrick had not officially proposed yet because he wanted to ask Fiona's father and mother for permission to marry their daughter. And yeah. then he would pop the question. So he was very nervous to ask them because he figured they don't know me. I'm the stranger. And they've right. never met me before. I'm sure they're just going to say no. We haven't known each other that long. But Rita and Elder gave their permission. Patrick said they were touched by the gesture of me asking them first. They were surprised but supportive. And Rita said they deserve all the happiness in the world. So why not? Isn't that yeah. nice? Also, she's a grown-ass woman. She doesn't need anybody's permission to do what she wants. So good for her parents for recognizing that. Exactly. Exactly. So that March uh, 23rd, while they were out on a walk, Patrick ended up getting down on one knee. He took out a bang, and he asked Fiona to marry him. And she said yes. Patrick said it was one of the best moments of my life. So they had planned to just spend three weeks together as a couple. And, you know, Uh at that point, Fiona didn't have a job yet. So they were just together constantly for three weeks. So, you know, he met all of her friends and her family. They would ride bikes together and do Uh all those Netherlandy type things. (laughs) Look at the tulips. Um, (laughs) They would go visit farms because Patrick actually grew up on a maize and tobacco farm that his his father managed. So in some ways, even though it was so different from Malawi, there were some things that made him feel like homey. Yeah. And Patrick was supposed to go back home on April 3rd. I feel um, like I know where this is going. He I'm was remembering the world. <laughs> remember but what if happened in the world. Remember a little mm-hmm. thing called the COVID nineteen pandemic hit, uh-huh. and that's when the country started to lock down and close their borders. And Malawi then announced a moratorium on arriving international flights, so Patrick could not go home. He uh-huh. was he was to stay in Middlestone. And Fiona said in the beginning, she thought it was great. She thought, yes, he gets to stay another week, you know, because yeah. at the time he thought like, oh, <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, we got a lockdown for two weeks. Okay, see you in April. But at the time, she wasn't working in the beginning, but then she ended up finding a job with the local health authority. Her job is actually to call people to tell them that they po- tested positive for COVID. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so I know it's a hard job. Yeah. And it's a very busy one. But important. Good for her. Yes. And so Patrick, because she was you know, working, Patrick was left alone most of the time, you know? Right. So weeks and weeks went by and it was pretty hard for him. Patrick says, it was hard because I was stuck. I could do nothing. He found it really difficult to deal with missing his daughter and being stuck. I mean, I mean, imagine you're yeah, just yeah. like stuck no, in that's... another country that- you don't know anyone and you know and you can't get home yeah and so no that's it it's like yeah. yes it sound i'm glad that they were together but also it just would be yeah it would be awful yeah it would be awful and fiona did whatever she could to make him feel better you know she said whenever he had a bad day i would try to be there or a hug or a kiss whatever he needed to let each other know that we still love each other and then to make things even harder fiona was very good at her job, so she was promoted. And so her job went uh, ended up becoming a 50 to 60 hour work week. Yeah. Which is a lot. So Patrick would just try to make himself busy by doing odd jobs around her parents' house. He would go to farms and try to learn about all of the animals, which I really respect the fact that this man is, uh, he's a young man too. He's trying to find things to do with his time that are productive, where I feel like a lot of people would just like lay around. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's oh, like, yeah. He, and just, you know, put the blanket over their head and Netflix it out for a long right. time, you know? And so I, and eat and eat. I'm not, okay, that's what I'm doing. So I find it inspiring that he found all of these things to do he actually he used to love being a painter and so he he said I I used to paint animals when I was a child but when I grew older I no longer had the time so he decided to get back into painting and Fiona found him an easel and then he started painting scenes that reminded him of 
of home. And he's, he's such a good painter that he actually sold a few pieces. One is a depiction of Malawi's big five wild animals. It was commissioned um, by a villager. Everyone in the village loved him. He said, everyone knew my story and people would come up to ask me, how are you? You know, because everybody knew he was like stuck there. And he said it was really strange for him at first because, um, and this is to quote him, he said, here people will talk about things very openly, like illness or other private experiences. In Malawi, we don't open up this much about our lives. And so on September 1st, Malawi ended up reopening its airports for a limited number of international flights. And so luckily on November 3rd, Patrick was finally able to get a flight home. So from March to November, so long. And how old is his kid? Yeah, his daughter's three years old. Oh my gosh. That's going to be so hard. Oh, and that's like, they're just too young to understand, really? I know. Why you're gone? Oh, that would be really hard. So yeah, so he luckily was able to get home and Fiona says, It has not really hit me yet that he's gone. I really miss him when I wake up. And Patrick, too, is, you know, struggling with the separation. He says that he feels very lonely, even though he's back home, just because they want to be together. And so, yeah, and I would imagine that that, you know, like it's been an intense, however, year, you know, and that the fact that they spent all of that time together, like they must, their relationship must be super strong right now. Yeah. So luckily, they both look forward to starting their life together. This May, Patrick says, I look forward to starting. I'm looking forward to starting a life with my beautiful wife. Fiona is going to move to Malawi in May. And um, they look back on their past seven months. Yeah, they they both say that it was a blessing in disguise. Her parents got a chance to know him better than they than they would have otherwise you know what I mean oh right because um, they would have probably visited every once in a while but like a weekend or whatever and not really ever known him like they do now yeah now he's really like family and yeah. so her father said our cultures are so different that initially caused some friction but as we got to know Patrick we saw what a great guy he was and while her mother Rita says she'll miss her daughter when she moves to Malawi she says if she is happy there then we are too Patrick agrees that his time in Middlestrom was a positive thing for them. He said, we face this challenge as a couple. Sure, we had our fair share of fights, but we resolved them. And Fiona says that living together so closely for seven months just made them stronger. Uh, She said, Patrick has learned to share his emotions with me. We've survived and are are more in love than ever. Oh, So I really am rooting for this couple. God bless. I can't wait for Fiona to move there with Patrick and then can build with their hammers, their home, <laughs> and the rest of their lives together. And I would love. love to see those wedding pictures when they happen. I'm sure they're going to be Please and thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That was a nice, sweet love story for these times. Yeah. It's yeah. just another reminder that positive things can come out of this bullshit year. Exactly. Years, uh, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> year. Let's say year. 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 Okay. All right, dude. Should we get into something dumb and something we love? Let's do it. So, you know, this is just silly, but you know, last week when you talked about that amazing new fitness craze. Yes. Fitness Marshall. Yeah, which by the way, he has like 3 million followers. So it's not new to everybody else. It's just new to me. Oh, and me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's new to us. New to the grandmas of the internet. Well, here's what made me feel even more like a grandma. I did close my door and turn on some Fitness Marshall and I was like, I don't know any of these songs. Oh, I don't know a lot of them either, but that's what's so fun. Now we can yeah. feel young again. Like, now we do know them. I was like, I, I know what Dua Lipa is now. <laughs> I don't even, I don't even know. Yeah, I was like, I don't even know who these artists are, most of them. And then I found some like a couple of like retro songs where it was like Britney Spears and <laughs> there's some Katy Perry in there. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I know yeah. some, some Lizzo, but yeah, no, yeah. I really enjoyed it, but it did, I was like, Oh man, I don't, I don't know any of these songs, but it was fun, right? You had it was fun? super fun. I did oh, have good. fun. And I, it like, 
at first I was like, I don't, what am I doing? But then as I just was like, I'm just going to go all out. It was, it was super fun and it was freeing and I had a great time. Um, and I sweat, I sweated a lot. So I appreciate that. That's how dancing always is. Like even at a wedding or at a a club when we used to go to clubs. Yeah. (laughs) It's always like the initial, like, I'm going to go on the dance floor now. Yeah, and then the, the first few moves, you're like, "This is I'm stupid," I look so and dumb. then it's like, "Wait a second, no!" <laughs> and then and then you just let go. Yeah, you have to ease into it. Can I tell you my one of my favorite things in comedy was when I started. I started in Cincinnati, and my home club is called Go Bananas, and next to the club is this bar. Like it's they literally their doors face each other, so everybody goes from the club to the bar after shows. And so when every week when we would do open mics at the club, everybody would go to the bar afterwards. And every Wednesday we'd have a dance party. And it was so fun. It was just like a bunch of dumb comics just would play the the jukebox and we would all dance. And I, it was like one of, it's one of my favorite things. And I'm like, I miss Wednesday night dance parties because it was just, you know, it was like everybody was awkward. (laughs) You know, you can imagine. It was like nobody was cool. We were all just like, but everybody went all out. We would dance for hours. And I love that. And the person, and this kind of goes into my one thing that I love. Um, the person who like initiated it all was my friend Alex Stone, who I've talked about a bunch. Um, mm-hmm. He's one of my like best friends in comedy. And he ha- he's the one who has the new show called The Movie Show, which is on sci-fi, which you guys should be watching every week. It's so funny. It's really yes. silly and out there. But this week, I got to just like be a very brief voice on the show. And that was so cool. I was so excited because I love the show. I love the thing that Alex um, and his writing partner have created. And I just was like so excited to be able to like contribute any little teeny part to it. That's um, so exciting. Yeah. And so it was whatever this last, when you're listening to this, it was last week's episode. But I think there are like eight out now and they're so good. Look for it on sci fi. I think a couple are on YouTube. But the fun thing is, is that they paid me for it, which is so great. <laughs> like, they paid for it. And that money is going to pay for something fun for Max's birthday, which is coming up. So it's just all good. It's the circle of life. It's the circle of, it's all started with the dance parties. It's <laughs> awesome. And then we're Sometimes all you just got to <laughs> dance. Just got to fucking dance. That's my moral. That's awesome. And then eventually you'll get paid for something. <laughs> <laughs> I know when you told me um, that you got paid, I mean, you should get paid for, uh, of course, for doing something on television and you get, we should get paid more yes. for being comedians. But like, I, I was like, whoa, really? <laughs> We're just so used to getting paid in exposure. Yeah. Well, and it was also just like, he texted me, was like, hey, can you say these two lines into your microphone? And I was like, literally, we had um, the people in our pod were over for dinner. I was like, I'll be right back. And I went into the room, used this microphone that I'm talking on, said a couple things, emailed it to him, and that was it. And I was just like, oh, that's so fun. Thank you for asking me. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I just was like excited to do it. And then he was like, okay, here, now these people are going to talk to you about getting paid. And I was like, what? That is so awesome. <laughs> yeah. So so what Maybe. do you got? Okay. So I guess for something dumb, I guess is um, – I don't really have anything. I guess it's just that um, like – No, that's great. Um, I, guess, <laughs> I guess like uh, like I've been drinking – because my something I love <laughs> is that I've been doing this. My friend um, – my friends Mike Albanese and uh, Becca Platt came to, when they were in town. Now they were very safe. They drove from New York, so like, give me a break, okay? And okay. when we met up, they were in my backyard by a fire, far yeah. away. But they brought all this delicious wine with them, and then um, and I was like, oh my god, these are so good because we drink a lot. And yeah. then um, we tried them all. And then Mike sent me a credit for like a hundred bucks. It's called NakedWines.com, and he sent me a credit for a hundred bucks, and I got twelve free bottles of wine for a hundred dollars you got 12 bottles of wine yeah i think it was like you get a free case you use the credit and you get a free case i'm almost nice. positive or maybe i had to just pay for the shipping i can't remember but, but i got like much. 12 but around bottles yeah and then everything that i um so once you then become like a member or whatever you get half off of all their wine yeah and um and then you get like a 20 or 40 depending on which one you buy basically it's these people they're all like independent winemakers so what you do is you pay like a monthly $20 or $40 whichever you choose fee and um that 
fee, you then use that as a credit to buy wine. But what it does is it helps put the money in the independent winemaker's pocket so that they can make the next crop of wine. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. No, and, and so, I know a lot of these like independent winemakers can't be part of like large distributions that you I mean you couldn't, you know, if you yeah. make like 200 bottles of one kind of wine, you can't be in Target or whatever, you know, even like distributed through regular wine shops. So that is like, you know, it's like craft beer, like you kind of have to go to the source. So that's awesome. Yeah. So it's called nakedwines.com. Highly recommend it. My sister-in-law is now into it. And this has been a fun thing for us, my sister-in-law, Kimberly, because we are, you know, can't see each other, but now we are like trying the same wines and like talking about it. And it's fun. And every single bottle that I've gotten is amazing. And that's the problem is then then I'll be like, I'll panic because I'm like, I need this before it goes out of stock. So then I'll get online and I'll buy six more bottles. Or, <laughs> and I just, as we were recording this, got a knock on the door from Mr. Delivery Man who just needed to know that, had to see my face to know that I was definitely over 21. And then he just <laughs> left the box on the porch and ran. Um, so, uh, so that's the so the something I love is is the wine and the naked wine thing. I'm really enjoying it. And um, but I guess the something dumb is I'm like, am I an alcoholic? <laughs> I think no. I've seen you, Jen. <laughs> you you shut it down way too early. <laughs> I try I try to be better these days about knowing that my limit is two. So I so try it if you guys like it. And if you want to, I can send you a um thing so you could get a hundred dollar credit. Just hit me up. Yeah. Hit me up and I'll send it to you. All right. Send me that credit, girl. Um, so that's it, dude. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Well, there's our show. I feel like we have given you some good recommendations. Um, give you a couple of really happy stories, three really happy stories, and one real sad one. Uh, yeah. I don't know why I'm still talking, but you guys hit us up. <laughs> hit us up we at all the places. Love ya. We love you guys. We're on all the places. Email dumbofpod at gmail.com we're on facebook we're on instagram we're now on tiktok hit us up wherever you need to also make sure see i see like we're reversing sally now you do the outro oh, okay okay um and guys don't forget to get out there and do something dumb for love nailed it dum da dum 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 dum